Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29 will be our sermon text for this morning. We've been working through Genesis for some months now, uh, section by section, story by story, and uh, we come to Genesis chapter 9. I, I, sh- I should say, and I, I think I mentioned this early on in our series on Genesis, that uh, what we had decided to do was uh, to work through Genesis and then um, sort of we'll do the first section of Genesis and then we'll actually go to the, the Gospel of John and we'll go through the first section of John and then we'll come back to Genesis and kind of go back and forth and that's so that we're getting both, you know, because it takes me so long to preach through a book, right, that way we're getting both the, the New and the Old Testament, right? Uh, so we're going to work through Genesis but we're going to take a break sh- pretty soon before we get to the Abraham story. We'll go into the Gospel of John, we'll work through uh, the first part of John, and then we'll come back to Genesis. So if you're wondering when, uh, when we get to John, like, wait a minute, what happened? I thought we were in Genesis. That, that's why. We will be back. We will finish Genesis. We still have a couple more sermons before uh, we go to John, but I just wanted to give you that warning uh, ahead of time. But this morning, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. Let's, uh, before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, for every book in the Bible. Uh, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we might know you, uh, that we might know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent. And we pray, Father, that as we read and study your word this morning, as we hear it, you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand and hearts to receive Uh, what you have for us in the scriptures. And so we pray that you would teach us uh, and that you would be glorified uh, in that. Uh, Work in us to those ends by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you show up for the first day of school or the first day of work and you're not wearing any pants? Now, I've had a lot of stress dreams. I don't think I've ever had that one. Uh, but it's a common enough occurrence, right, uh, it, it, that it's made it into the everyday imagination of our culture. And those dreams are a sign of 
anxiety or uh, of being unprepared, uh, of worry that you won't be accepted. Uh, but there's an even deeper reason why they work. Uh, the idea of being naked makes us feel exposed. And exposure brings embarrassment and shame. On some deep level, we all want to be known, but not that well. Which is why we cover ourselves. And yet sometimes our shame persists, doesn't it? We, we still feel exposure. We still feel shame. And we feel those things because the real problem is not the exposure of our bodies, but the exposure of our souls. This morning we're going to look at an odd little story uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, but the more you dig into this story, the more fascinating it becomes. And of course we'll see that the, the temporary solutions of this age are ultimately inadequate. Because the temporary solutions of this age can only affect the body, the outward appearance, and not the heart. And what our hearts truly long for and what our hearts truly need is found alone in Jesus. So we're going to look through this passage uh, a couple of times. Uh, we'll look at first the, the sons of Noah and the covering of shame, and that's where we'll really dig into the story itself. And then we're going to talk about your shame covered in the son of Shem, and finally, covering others' shame in the name of Jesus. So first, the sons of Noah and the covering of shame. Uh, this really is, I think, a pretty fascinating little story. That the, you, you remember the background, right? The God who created the world good uh, judged humanity when they began to ruin his good world. Rather than filling the earth with God's image, uh, they were filling it with violence and oppression and the shedding of blood. Something had to be done. God sent a flood to remove violent humanity from the face of the earth, and he saved one man, Noah, and his family from that flood to repopulate the earth and start afresh. Noah gets off the boat and immediately dedicates himself and all creation to God through offering up this whole burnt offering, an offering of dedication to his God. God promises to never again destroy the earth, and he puts in place certain laws to help curb the, the bloodthirsty violence of sinful man. And from that point on, life can begin anew, and that, that brings us to our text this morning. Uh, the first thing we see is, is Moses, who was the, the writer of Genesis, reminds us of a, a little background information. In verse 18, he tells us that the sons of Noah that come out of the ark are Shem and Ham and Japheth. Uh, adding, at this point, a kind of cryptic remark that Ham was the father of Canaan. It seems likely that Noah had no other children because verse 19 says, from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So the first action then of the story actually takes, part, takes place in verse 20. Noah takes up his role as a steward of creation and he plants a vineyard. Uh, now, just as an interesting kind of side note, historically, wine actually comes from the very region of the world where it is thought the ark came to rest, somewhere between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Uh, and so Noah here, he, he plants the, the, a vineyard, the first vineyard, uh, perhaps. Noah is now a new Adam taking care of a new garden, a vineyard, which he himself planted. He drinks some of the wine, becomes drunk, and lays uncovered, naked in his tent. Now, some see this as, as the, the sin of Noah. Uh, his drunkenness is his downfall. Uh, but we need to slow down and listen to the text. It, it, it's interesting, Moses does not comment 
he does not censure Noah for his drunkenness. Uh, it's true, what, what we're seeing here is kind of the, uh, the new fall like that of Adam involving a, a, a new fruit, this time grapes turned into wine and ending in nakedness, just like uh, in the garden. You remember after Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, they knew that they were naked and hid themselves. But Adam and Eve, uh, if you remember, were also cursed for their sin. Uh, but in this story, it's not Noah that's cursed, but Canaan. And so Noah is not directly censured for his drunkenness. This, this isn't, on the surface at least, a morality tale about the dangers of alcohol. And yet we should say a couple of things about that uh, as we think about Noah, as we think about uh, wine. Um, first, according to Scripture, alcohol is actually a gift from God. Uh, Psalm 104, verses 14 to 15, says that God made plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth wine to gladden the heart of man. Uh, God's purpose for wine was to gladden the heart of man. Uh, this is enforced by uh, the command in Deuteronomy 14 to purchase wine and strong drink. Strong drink, they're probably referring to grain-based alcohol. And then to celebrate God's provision at the feast, at a feast in the temple. Uh, and so wine and strong drink are given, according to Scripture, for celebration, not, not for drowning your sorrows, not for forgetting the, uh, your problems in life, not for loosening your inhibitions so that you do things you shouldn't and wouldn't otherwise do, but for celebrating God's goodness and provision. And yet there's another side to the story, isn't there? On the other hand, drunkenness throughout Scripture is, is censured. Uh, when one is filled with wine, they lack self-control. Uh, they, they do and say stupid and worse, sinful things. Proverbs 23 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Or maybe even more appropriate for our passage, Proverbs 20 verse, wine says, 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so the Bible's teaching on alcohol is balanced, isn't it? We, we could say more, but you can sum it up like this. It, it's given for joy and celebration, but there's a line, and at some point... Uh, that, that leads to a lack of self-control and all kinds of misery, and we should be wise in the way that we partake of it. And while Noah is not directly censured, uh, sometimes the writers of biblical narrative imply a censure by the outcome. Uh, so another example would be uh, it, later in Genesis, Abraham will take Hagar as his second wife of sorts, and uh, while the writer never says directly, this is a bad idea, uh, he shows us this is a bad idea by the misery that results. And so while the point of this story is, is not the evils of alcohol, there is this underlying censure of drunkenness by the very outcome of Noah's actions. Look what happens as a result. Now, of course, the real question is, what is the outcome of Noah's actions? Uh, verse 22 says simply, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, many commentators have puzzled over this verse. 
Because Ham saw and told of his father's nakedness, his youngest son is cursed. What is going on? Is there more to this story? And the answer is it's possible. Uh, in fact, if you, if you look at other places in Scripture that use similar language, uh, there is more going on in those other places. So Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17 says, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. And it's clear from the context that, that seeing her nakedness there implies more. And so some believe that Ham actually defiled his father in some way. Uh, That would certainly explain the seriousness of Ham's sin, would it not? Uh, Though it still wouldn't explain why Canaan, Ham's son, not Ham himself, is cursed. And so there's another uh, suggestion that some have made that goes like this, and uh, I'll give you some of the details, but some of them are pretty speculative, as you'll see. Some think that Noah's wife was actually Naamah, Now you're saying, who's Naamah? Naamah is the daughter of Lamech in the line of Cain. She's mentioned at the end of Cain's genealogy in Genesis chapter 4. The question is, why is she mentioned there at the end of that genealogy? And some believe that Genesis 4 and 5, one that ends with Naamah and the other that ends with Noah, actually constitute a kind of ancient Near Eastern marriage document, giving the genealogies of the bride and the groom. Uh, So Naamah, the daughter of Lamech uh, in the line of Cain, is the bride, and Noah, the son of Lamech in the line of Seth, Adam's third son, is the groom. What actually adds to the plausibility of of this uh, is the words in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, that the sons of God, the children of God in the line of Seth, saw that the daughters of men, that is, the ungodly line of Cain, were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Naamah, the name Naamah, happens to mean pleasant or attractive. And so the story goes, Noah is actually one of the sons of God who took for himself a daughter of man, Naamah, as his wife. Now, what does that all have to do with Genesis chapter 9? So some speculate, uh, and, and this is uh, somewhat independent of what I've just said, though it, it furthers it because of Naamah's kind of questionable moral upbringing. Go look at Genesis 4 for that. Uh, Some speculate that Ham's sin was not defiling his father, but his mother, possibly Naamah, and that the child that came from that union was Canaan, hence Canaan's curse. Now, that may seem overly and unnecessarily sensational, but actually something similar happens two other times in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 19, Lot's daughters get him drunk specifically so they can sleep with him and bear his children. The reverse of what is said to happen here. And then in Genesis 35, Reuben lays with his father's concubine, which is what loses him the inheritance as Israel's firstborn. That's why Jesus is not from the tribe of Reuben, but the tribe of Judah. So as you see, right, Genesis is not quite rated PG as you work your way through it. And the point is this take on the story is plausible. You may wonder, how do you get from the nakedness of his father to Noah's wife? Uh, That actually is a pretty simple transition. Four times in Scripture, we read something like this in Leviticus 20, verse 11. Leviticus 20, verse 11 says, If a man lies with his father's wife, 
he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And so plausibly, Ham laid with Noah's wife, his mother, or at least stepmother, and she bore Canaan, which again explains both the seriousness of this sin and the curse on Canaan. Now, as plausible and intriguing and maybe sensational as that story is, even if it is true, it's not quite the writer's focus. Notice what is his focus. Ham saw his father's nakedness, whatever that means, tells his brothers about it, and what do they do? The story slows down in verse 23 and describes in detail how the brothers care for their father. Laying a garment on their shoulders, they walk backwards to cover the nakedness of their father. And then, in case it wasn't clear, we're told, their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. The emphasis is on seeing and not seeing. Gordon Wenham, one commentator, says the reason we want to fill in the details is because as Westerners, we are strangers to a world where discretion and filial loyalty are supreme virtues. And I would add this. Remember what we see here is the fall of the new creation, an echo of the downfall of Adam and Eve. Well, what happens after they eat of the fruit? They realize they are naked and they feel shame. Because of sin, nakedness is equated with shame. To view and then gossip about his father's nakedness is crime enough. It violates his father's honor. It dishonors his father's name. Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Right? To, to cover over something is the loving way to go. To spread it around is uh, unloving. Or 1 Peter 4.8, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. So rather than showing love and honor to his father by covering him, Han dishonored his father by spreading abroad his father's nakedness and shame. And so you have one father, three sons, right? The father gets drunk, lies naked in his tent. One son uh, voyeuristically looks on and spreads abroad his father's nakedness. The other sons honor their father and cover him. Again, think back to the Garden of Eden. What does God do with Adam and Eve's nakedness? Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Ham has played really the role of Satan, bringing to light shame and nakedness. Shem and Japheth have played the role of God, covering shame and nakedness. Now Noah wakes up, he finds out what Ham has done, and he curses Canaan. Again, if our writer is leaving out what for him would be unnecessary details, perhaps more went on and Canaan is the illegitimate child of Ham and Naamah, and then cursing of Canaan makes sense. Others have suggested that because Ham, Noah's youngest son, acted indecently, Canaan, Ham's youngest son, is cursed. I have to confess, I really don't know. I don't know why it's Canaan and not Ham. Of course, we do know how this fits into the latter story of Israel. The sons of Shem, the Israelites, end up destroying the Canaanites in part because of their sexual immorality. And so we're getting here a preview of things to come. Uh, Shem, on the other hand, is blessed, or at least the Lord, the God of Shem, is blessed. 
And that the Lord, the covenant God, is called the God of Shem is significant. Shem is the ancestor of Abraham and so all of Israel, the Lord's chosen people. And so God is referred to as the Lord, the God of Shem. Again, here we get a foretaste. God is giving us a a preview of things to come, laying out the path of history beforehand. Uh, Japheth, on the other hand, is the, the, the father of the Gentiles. And he is also blessed in two ways. First, that he will be enlarged, playing on Japheth's name. Uh, He will become great. Uh, The Gentiles of the earth will come from him. Of course, that's quite a a lot of people. And he will dwell in the tents of Shem, which is to say Shem will be blessed and Japheth will find his blessing in Shem. Again, it's it's a foreshadow of things to come. God will say to Abraham, a descendant of Shem, in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Japheth will be blessed in the tents of Shem. And notice what we have going on here. I mean, you, you, you remember after the fall, humanity was divided into two groups, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, two parts of humanity, God's children and Satan's, that would be in perpetual enmity. But here, a, a kind of third group is singled out. There is Canaan, the, the, the reprobate portion of mankind, but then there is this uniquely set-aside Shem whose God is the Lord, and the rest of humanity is blessed in him. Uh, this shows that the way of blessing is not found in ourselves, but in another. God's blessing for falling humanity is not found directly, but indirectly through his blessing on the children of Shem, or more specifically, on a specific child of Shem. And so that's this this odd little story of the sons of Noah and the covering of shame. Uh, But it brings us to our shame being covered in the son of Shem. What are you ashamed of? I don't say, are you ashamed of anything, but what? Because it's a pretty safe bet that you feel shame about something. And can I be honest? I have a, I have a, a, a terrible memory. I, I forget details, names, events, all kinds of things. Uh, by the time I get home this afternoon, I will have forgotten everything I said to you this morning. That's why I have notes. But you know what I do remember? I remember every embarrassing moment of my life. Why are those the ones that stick? I, I remember every stupid thing I've ever said, everything I wish I could unsay and undo. That's what I remember. You know, it's shame. It it haunts us, doesn't it? Now, maybe you're not quite as messed up as I am. I hope for your sake that's true. Uh, But the question for all of us is, how do we deal with shame? What do we do with that? Again, remember back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, What did Adam and Eve immediately do when they realized their nakedness? They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And that's what we do, right? We try to cover ourselves with fig leaves. What does that look like? We try to cover ourselves in in glory, the glories of this age in some way. That may be physically trying to look glorious, right? The right clothes, the right hairstyle, the right glasses, the, the right physique. That may be academically, earning degree after degree to hang on your wall for everyone to see. It may be relationally, right? We try to be funny or gregarious or winsome, right? We, we try to gain a reputation by whatever means is at our disposal. It's all fig leaves to cover our shame. The problem is that the, the shame of sin, our sin, and even sins committed against us, it, it remains. Shame is sticky like that. It doesn't seem to go away. 
And we live our lives just hoping no one else will notice. Well, Jesus came to cover our shame. Like God in Genesis chapter 3, like Shem and Japheth in Genesis chapter 9, Jesus, the son of Shem, comes to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to drink down our shame to the full that we might be covered. And so God the Son becomes a man in the person of Jesus. He clothes himself in human skin. He has morning breath and nose hairs and private parts that he covers He enters fully into what it means to be a human being. He is ultimately rejected by his nation and his family and even his closest friends who betray and deny him. He is arrested and accused, stripped, beaten, mocked, and he goes to the cross naked, bearing our shame. He is crucified with thieves, executed as a lawbreaker, condemned and humiliated. Now, Jesus deserves none of this, right? He is God in the flesh. He is without sin. He is glorious, but he takes on shame for us. He becomes naked for us. He is taken down from the cross, dead, powerless, lifeless, and buried in a borrowed tomb. And if that were the end of the story, it would be a story of a humiliated man whose days ended in obscurity, who would have been forgotten by the world. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Jesus rose in glory. Glory is the opposite of shame. Jesus' resurrection is his vindication. He's not a a shameful sinner, but a righteous savior. Jesus never needs to avert his eyes, cast down his gaze, or look away from anyone. He has no shame as the resurrected one. Jesus' resurrection body itself is his glorious robes. He need not cover himself. His his resurrection body is his glory, his badge of honor as the righteous one. When I think about this, I I think about C.S. Lewis's depiction in in The Great Divorce, this fictional story of this day trip to heaven, and he uh, depicts in there the the, the residents of heaven like this. He describes them like this. He says, some were naked, some robed, But the naked ones did not seem less adorned, and the robes did not disguise in those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. Uh, You see, there's nothing to hide. There's no shame. All is glorious. Clothed or not clothed, it is irrelevant because sin and shame are no more. Well, Jesus has drunk our shame at the cross and risen glorious. Jesus both took the shame of our sin and was shamefully sinned against, stripped, beaten, mocked, paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, but then he rose in glory. And he now offers you glory. He offers to take your sin and your shame and clothe you in his righteousness and his glory, to clothe you with himself, to give you his name and his identity, his righteousness, his glory. But how does that happen? How do we come to Christ to be clothed by him? And here's the the ironic twist. To be clothed in glory, we must expose our shame. Not uncovering our bodies, but confessing our sin. You see, when we confess our sin, we are uncovering our shame. And when we confess our sins, we are forgiven and cleansed. Uh, Cleansing is, is, is other biblical language that deals with shame. Cleansing is how you deal with the stain of sin. The old person, the old ways, the old shame. And we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. 
And so to be clothed in glory, we expose our shame by confessing our sin and then look to Jesus to cover us with his blood. Are you full of sin and shame? The blood of Jesus alone can cover and cleanse. And you see, in this way, the sons of Japheth are blessed in the tents of Shem. Because as we Gentiles find blessing in the son of Shem, the one who dwelt in the tent of human flesh, who tabernacled among us, as John says, our shame is covered in the son of Shem, Jesus, the crucified, risen, and glorious one. So that's the the sons of Noah and the covering of shame, your shame and how it can be covered in the son of Shem. And finally, uh, covering other shame in the name of Jesus. Uh, the, the question, of course, is how, how do we then live? Right? How do we live in light of what Jesus has done for us in covering our shame? And the answer is 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, or Proverbs 10.12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Uh, one of the, the reasons that we are slow to admit our sin or confess our temptations or just be honest about our brokenness is we are afraid of how people will respond. Will you laugh at me? Will you look down on me? Will you gossip about me? We must approach others the way Jesus approaches us with sympathy and compassion and ready to cover a multitude of sins. Uh, there are times, of course, when sins need to be brought to light. Matthew 18 tells us how to do that. And while uh, it shouldn't be rigidly applied, think about uh, Paul with Peter in the book of Galatians. That was pretty direct. Uh, the, the basic principle is this. You include as few people as necessary to deal with sin adequately. What kinds of sins need to be brought to light in this way? Uh, two examples would be, one, any sin that brings harm to others, certainly, and any sin that is persistent and unrepentant at which time you begin by including as few people as necessary to deal with that sin adequately. Uh, But the point is we want to be known as a safe place for broken, repentant sinners. We want to be known as a place where those who confess their sins in repentance or admit shameful sins uh, of others against them will not be shamed but loved, uh, will not be mocked but cared for, will not be judged but reminded of the shame-removing grace of God in Christ who will then be helped to walk by the power of the Spirit in newness of life. See, we we must not be like Ham, uh, voyeuristically indulging in the latest gossip of this person or that, but like Shem and Japheth, covering shame as our shame has been covered by the blood and righteousness and glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Savior. Uh, We thank you for Jesus who went to the cross to bear our sin and uh, our shame, not just guilt, but shame. We thank you that he rose again in glory and that he offers us his glory, Uh, not our glory, not a glory we can attain in ourselves or by the works of of this age, but the glory that comes from Jesus. Help us, Father, to confess our sins, so expose our shame. And so find glory and grace in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.